Listener Production. Hi, Sasha Barbagat with you. Welcome to The Briefing. We are go for launch. I wasn't alive when humans last stepped foot on the moon, but it's widely accepted as one of humankind's greatest achievements. Well, last Friday, a private landing craft commissioned by NASA touched down on the lunar surface. Well, we haven't seen a US-made spacecraft land on the moon in over five decades. But not only is it something that's been led by the Americans, it's also been completely made by a private company. It was the first US mission to land on the moon in over 50 years. So what is it doing up there? And will it help get astronauts back to the moon in the next few years? That's coming up in the second half of the briefing. But first, Benson Siebert is here with the headlines. It is Tuesday, February 27. Good morning, Sasha. Landmark data has revealed the gender pay gap at dozens of Australian companies is sitting at over 50%. This is the first time that pay gaps for over 5,000 private businesses have been released under new laws passed last year aimed at reducing the number of women earning less than their male counterparts. Nationally, the gender pay gap is sitting at 19% or a bit over $18,000 a year. More than 60 61% of employers have a gap that favours men, while 30% were neutral, with a gap of 5% or less. Mm, But the gap is much bigger at some of the country's biggest employers, including at our airlines, Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, and interestingly, also a bunch of brands popular with women, including City Chic, Forever New, Pandora and Lorna Jane. Barking the trend is the brewing industry, Lion, which discovered big problems in a 2016 self-audit, set about fixing its gender pay gap and has brought it down to 1.6% in this data. And there is hope that publishing this information can help be a catalyst for change, with some success seen in a similar initiative in the UK, Bensian. It's worth noting as well, this data doesn't necessarily mean women in the same roles as men are being paid less, but it can mean that women are under represented in top roles in companies, which is an equal problem. Uh, And so that then encourages those companies to start employing women in higher positions and helping to narrow the gender pay gap. Mm. I was looking through some of this data that was reported and the airlines are particularly bad offenders. Jetstar is sitting at 53.5%, Virgin 41%, Qantas 39%, and other major businesses, the Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, and Suncorp are all quite bad as well. I think one of the reasons that uh, airlines might be going through this problem is that there's very few female pilots. I had to fly a lot last year and I don't think there was ever one female pilot who made an announcement over the loudspeaker and that's just anecdotal evidence but I think it might be part of it. New South Wales police will not march at this weekend's Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Police have said they're disappointed after the board of the parade made the decision to request that officers not march. The board says it made the decision in the wake of the alleged murder of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. Police officer Bo Lamar Condon was charged with their murders on Friday. The board says people have been voicing their concerns and unease over police participating in the event and that police participation could add to the distress. New South Wales police said that despite the decision 
decision, they continue to work with organisers to provide a safe environment at the parade. Yeah, it's a big step, Bencion, and it's worth noting as well that the inclusion of police in the annual parade was already being debated within the LGBTQ community, and that is following a special commission of inquiry into hate crimes, which made 19 recommendations in December. But New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb didn't apologise until Sunday to the families of gay hate crime victims after the report found officers had been indifferent, negligent, dismissive or hostile. So this is something that has been bubbling away and the organisers of Mardi Gras have made this decision. It's a big decision, but in my opinion, the right one. Um, I think that if police marched in this weekend's parade under the current circumstances, it would have been a serious public safety risk. I think it would have escalated quite badly. Um, And I think that New South Wales police were wrong to insist that they they should march. All of this, of course, would be extremely awful for those LGBTQ police officers who were hoping to march in the parade, although I think that um, there would be an understanding that there's a a lot of pain and a lot of um, fear at the moment, and uh, that needs to be acknowledged. Sweden is set to join NATO after Hungary finally gave them the green light. The North Atlantic Treaty Organisation is a defence pact between the 31 European member states, the US and Canada. If any one of them is attacked, the others must come to that country's defence. More or less, it protects Europe from Russia. Hungary's parliament has approved the bill to allow Sweden to join after a delay of more than a year. NATO is a defence alliance. We are allies working together to protect each other in the event of an external attack. There is no more serious commitment. That was Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban there. Hungary is the last of the 31 members of the alliance to ratify Sweden's membership, Bencion. Yeah, and this comes after Sweden abandoned its non-alignment policy to join NATO in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Sweden will be part of NATO very soon, as the rest of the process should last only a few days. Finland, which was also a neutral party before the war in Ukraine, announced its intention to join NATO in May 2022, which happened officially in April last year. Russian President Vladimir Putin sent his army into Ukraine in 2022 in part to check NATO's expansion and to weaken the West, although the opposite effect has arguably occurred. And if you're interested in more about exactly what the impact of the war in Ukraine has been since it began two years ago, we did do an episode on this yesterday. Check it out in the feed. It's super interesting. And this is just another step in that whole process of how much the geopolitical landscape has changed since the war in Ukraine. And Scott Morrison will make his valedictory speech in federal parliament today, marking an end to his 16-year political career. The former PM has lined up a job in the US, but reportedly plans to work from Australia. He will tour the country in May, though, to promote his forthcoming Christian book, Plans for Your Good. His exit will pave the way as well for a by-election in the Sydney seat of Cook, likely to be held sometime after April. Uh, Bencion, there was an interesting excerpt I read in an interview he did with Nine Newspapers this morning. Uh, The former PM, Scott Morrison, said he most wants to emulate Julia Gillard in his life post-politics, saying he respects how she's conducted herself since she's left Canberra. So pretty nice from ScoMo, actually.
Yeah, I also read that Scott Morrison says he has a few regrets, but to quote the, <laughs> to quote the newspaper report, true to form, he did not name them, preferring instead to reflect on what he accomplished. And um, I'm just so excited to read his Christian book. Um, I think this <laughs> this um, completes his transformation into, I think, what his second career is going to be after politics, which is kind of like a, a Christian evangelical spokesperson, I guess. Like him or don't, 16 years is a long time in politics and I'm sure he'll be enjoying life outside of the Canberra bubble. Benson, thanks so much for joining us for the headlines today. Next up is our deep dive into the latest lunar landing. American firm Intuitive Machines made history last Friday when its lunar lander Odysseus touched down on the moon. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. Today, for the first time in more than a half century, the U.S. has returned to the moon. We are transmitting and uh, welcome to the moon. It is the first private company to ever land on the moon. It's also the first US mission to land on the lunar surface in more than 50 years. It is up there for a week, conducting experiments and preparing for humans' return to the moon as part of NASA's Artemis program. We thought we'd find out exactly what it's doing and how it's paving the way for astronauts to once again walk on the lunar surface. Dr. Rebecca Allen is an astrophysicist at Swinburne Uni and she's here to talk through it all. Dr. Allen, thank you for joining us. Look, just how significant is this mission in terms of lunar history? Well, we haven't seen a U.S.-made spacecraft land on the moon in over five decades. But not only is it something that's been led by the Americans, it's also been completely made by a private company. And I also think it's important to add the cost of the mission as well at just over $100 million, which sounds like a lot to us, but it's really just a fraction of what the other kind of space agency spacecraft and other landers cost. So it's incredible to see all of these different elements come together in what really is a first plus a significant achievement. Why has NASA turned to uh, the private space to get these rovers up and rolling and launched and into space? It comes down to there's simply too many scientific objectives that NASA wants to accomplish. It's a massive agency. And it's not just about space exploration. There's also space science. So there's a lot of astronomy missions, uh, as well as these kind of general scientific exploration and human space exploration missions that want to be undertaken. So they can't do it all. Odysseus uh, touched down last Friday. What's it doing up there? Talk us through from landing to how long is it going to be up there? What's the life of the rover expected to be? What are we going to get back from it from Earth? What's happening up there? Yeah, so what's really interesting about these missions is we put so much emphasis on it getting there and landing, um, and it's only going to have a very short window. So it landed on Friday, and it was only going to be a seven-day total planned science mission because it's powered by solar panels, and it's going into soon what's called lunar night. And so it goes along with the phases of the moon, and so it's going to have two weeks, essentially, of darkness with no 
direct solar power. And that means oftentimes these rovers will shut down and they will not wake back up. Sometimes they will. So we say seven days, but that's, you know, really what's guaranteed. So we're still waiting to get a lot of the initial data back. And again, this is a first for intuitive machines. And so again, good old Parks or the uh, Murray-Yang telescope will hopefully be providing that data and we'll get some of these initial scientific results. But it's just all about, can we land there? What is the immediate environment like? And will it be something, an area where we would potentially think about putting humans in the future? Yeah, so I understand it's uh, touched down in a section called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, so please correct me, Molpert A. Uh, Why has it chosen that spot in particular? First of all, you did about as good of a pronunciation as I would. I'm not sure um, as well. This, you know, uh, ancient astronomer, how to pronounce his name. Um, No, look, I think the idea is this is the South Pole region of the moon. First of all, is much more heavily cratered than the, the middle latitudes of the moon where we've seen the Apollo missions and even the Jackson mission a month ago <laughs> um, land. And that's because these heavily cratered regions, we think there's places, well, we know there's places is that sunlight might have never touched. So that means there could be water ice there that's preserved for millions of years. And so to get this really pristine, untouched resource is very valuable to us. But also, as an astronomy aside, if you have areas that are shielded from Earth, then you can do radio science that's never been done before. Um, You know, you have this pure signal that's coming in. So it's in part because of the resources and also, you know, just this location is advantageous for science. I was having a chat off air with the producers and we were kind of theorizing, like, what is to gain from exploration on the moon? Why are we still, we did it in the 60s. There was the Apollo missions. Why are we still going back there? First of all, we still don't even have a 1,000%, you know, concrete. This is how the moon formed. This is the history of our, you know, only satellite uh, moon. And so there's that just very pure, again, science motivation, but also I think the kind of inherent in us, human exploration, how far can we push the limits? All the people that have been to the moon before have been one demographic, you know, middle-aged, you know, younger middle-aged white males. And so what does it mean for other types of people to go there? And what kind of science can we gain from that? And how could it even help us back here on Earth? But fundamentally, if we want to continue our journey beyond the moon to Mars, we have to have this stepping stone. We're not planning just going straight from Earth to Mars. And so we need this kind of long-term base if you will, to understand more about the effects of the extreme environment of space and preparing for that longer, much longer voyage onto Mars. Mm, That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that that was kind of a consideration was that the moon is going to be this middle point or at least this, as you said, like a pit stop on the way to further planets like Mars. Um, We've also seen, look, in recent years, a string of landings and launches fail when it comes to lunar exploration. Why is it so hard to get right? Well, I think this is a big thing that was being tested with Odie, I love the nickname, is that there's all of these, you know, Going back, there was basically one way to understand your reference, and that was by constantly taking measurements by something which is called LIDAR or radar. Essentially, you're bouncing light off the surface. You're saying, how far away am I? Or you could take reference images. 
But all of that requires computing. It requires communicating a signal. And so it's something which is not live, like driving a little remote control car. You just don't have that quick kind of control. Plus, you also have limited propellant. So you have a limited window of how much you could actually correct a spacecraft. Now what we're seeing is a lot more of that become automated. So A, we're testing new ways for a spacecraft to understand exactly where it is or a lander to understand exactly where it is in terms of reference to the surface and is this a dangerous place to land? And that also the onboard autonomous computing. So these are both new areas where we've seen such innovative you know, leaps in technology. JAXA was able to demonstrate a very high accuracy. This is exactly where you want to land. And what Intuitive Machines and NASA are hoping to demonstrate, and then even an Australian company based out of Sydney, is how can we not only find where we want to land more accurately, but do it much more safely. So I predict, you know, in the next five to six years, the kind of nail-biting seven minutes of terror, 10 minutes of terror will actually be something that we don't have to worry about anymore. What about getting humans back up there? Obviously, uh, we haven't seen that for a very, very long time, 50 years, as you said earlier. Yeah. How soon are we to reaching that goal again? And do you think it'll have the same cultural impact that it did in 1969 when we saw the very first moon landing? One thing to answer that question first, it's really special. I got to go to Houston at the end of last year and actually visit, you know, the Space Center and the museum and see the Artemis exhibit. And I think it's already having an amazing effect for female identifying, you know, young scientists and engineers and people who are diverse because they see for the first time themselves as these people making space missions happen and actually being the ones that are going to get to go on that space mission. And so it's amazing kind of, I wasn't alive when the Apollo landing happened, but that was happening. And a lot of that generation are still alive. And then Artemis. So we get like this kind of double factor. So I think it's a huge kind of cultural, the next, um, the future space, you know, leaders, but also so much of our daily lives depends on space. So it's a great way to bring that visibility to this is a very important industry. And it's not just about going to the moon, but it's all of these different activities that we rely on. So I think it's really important for that education. How far are we away from it happening? Look, I think NASA really could, within a year or so, could actually have people simply touch down, spend a bit of time, come back. I'm fairly confident in that. The long-term habitation, so we're talking days, weeks, months, I think that's where we look at it's very challenging because of the amount of radiation that's sustained, the effects of the you know limited gravity, this real extreme environment, which is why we're so reliant on what we call microgravity experimentations. Look, Dr. Allen, before we let you go, I suppose uh, a lot's going on in the world at the moment. There are awful wars. There's the fight against climate change. There's economic pressures right across the globe. Australia is not unique in experiencing that right now. Some people would watch things like this. We've seen so many launches in recent years, especially with the rise of Elon Musk's ventures, Jeff Bezos as well, and kind of looking at it going, why are we so obsessed with space and what's happening up there when there are so many problems on earth that we need to solve? What's your take on that position that some people might have? 
I think it's absolutely, you know, I, I understand it. And I think that's why it's important for people like myself to try to communicate that, yeah, we do see, you know, space tourism and human spaceflight, which arguably those those kind of direct benefits are very hard, you know, to, to understand. But even with human spaceflight, the innovations and technology that will support that and monitoring the health of astronauts and those type of interventions, those could be breakthrough innovations that could could change the course of you know some areas of medicine um, and health monitoring on earth but again we have to have you know the political kind of infrastructure and see you know be able to realize those benefits even if they happen they still have to translate back to people on earth but like i said we depend on space in our everyday lives and earth observation imaging you know this is a critical platform that can help us not only monitor in more resolution what's happening with our climate but with, you know, pinpoint finding methane leaks, finding the people who are who are not behaving as they should, this gives us a new tool to really be able to regulate it and, and hopefully enforce it and protect more vulnerable populations who don't have the capacity, the finances to be able to fund their own space programs. That was Dr. Rebecca Allen, co-director of the Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne University of Technology. And that is all for this morning's podcast. Be sure to check back the Savo at three for another episode. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Briefing, maybe you've got an episode idea or there's something you'd like to have your say on, please do share your thoughts. You can go to our Instagram page and send us a message at The Briefing Podcast. Also, don't forget to join our broadcast channel behind The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thanks for listening. Listener.